Welcome to another installment of All Things Software Delivery, where we connect the people, ideas, and experiences that make up the amazing world of software technology. Your hosts are Dan Spears and Brian Dawson. Dan is a developer's developer who dreams in Perl. Brian is a former software engineer who thinks he still is, creating more Google Sheets than Style Sheets. Join us for open, candid, and insightful conversations with the bosses, the builders, and everyone in between. With a combined 50 years of experience in software, they will take you through topics spanning ideation to integration, compilers to community, to DevOps, in other words, all things software delivery. Hey, hey, welcome to All Things Software Delivery. I am your co-host, Brian Dawson, and I'm here with my co-host, Dan Spears. Dan, can you say hello for a second? Hello for a second. All right, all right. So what we're going to do, being that this is our first episode, I want to start out by actually interviewing Dan and getting to know Dan a little better as we start this journey together. And then in a follow-up session, we'll get an opportunity for Dan to interview me. You'll learn a bit about us. And then we'll kick off this fantastic journey that I expect ATS to beat. Hello. Hey. Welcome. Hey, hey. Welcome to All Things Software Delivery. Uh, I am your co-host, Brian Dawson, and I'm here with my co-host, Dan Spears. Dan, can you say hello for a second? Hello for a second. All right. All right. So what we're going to do, being that this is our first episode, I want to start out by actually interviewing Dan and getting to know Dan a little better as we start this journey together. And then in a follow-up session, we'll get an opportunity for Dan to interview me. You'll learn a bit about us, and then we'll kick off this fantastic journey that I expect ATS to beat. So Dan, how you doing today? I am okay. I am yeah. Yeah, doing doing great. Nice day. Explain to me, and I think I know, I wanted to hear I'm fantastic. And I'm going to beg to say, I'm going to answer the question that I'm going to ask, why just okay? And I think it gives us something to talk about today. In reality, Dan, wait, you've been in software and technology for how long? Do I really want to date myself? Yeah. 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 Okay. So a good 20, almost 27 years, 28 years, maybe even longer than that. It's longer. You're lying. You just don't want to say it. It's because I clock in (laughs) at, if I start the second time I started programming, I think I clock in at about 33 or 35 now. I think let's just, we can say this. For both of us, it's long enough that we don't have to remember how long we've been. Yeah. I mean, I will just say that part of like some of my original early days of programming was on a teletypewriter. Okay. Right. <laughs> so it was, you know, it's not, there was no display. It's like you, you literally. Oh, really? The feedback from the computer was a printer. It's like a typewriter. Yes. Oh, wow. Yeah. So you were literally, you would type a command at the typewriter. And then the computer would respond to you with the typewriter. And so that was, yeah, no screen. I want to dig into that for a second. I want to bookmark where I was going to go. And just to get it in our minds so we can go back to it is unwrapping the okay. Is I want to talk about as somebody that has been in software and technology and been an engineer since you were typing on teletype writers. You are at a particular journey in your career, right? Which we'll unwrap in a minute because I think it speaks to the state of technology. But since you brought that up, just focusing on technology itself. So 
having gone from an era where your output was a printer to an era of everything SaaS, where you have helped deliver extremely complex software projects, what's going to be a wide open question? What has changed? What is the difference in that experience that you had now? And what a software engineer experience is today? It's really interesting because in the early days, as it were, even with mainframes and that sort of thing, much of your interaction was, I would say screen scraping exactly, but it was almost like, especially on mainframes, the terminal, that's where all the information was. Mm -hmm. It's like you would type something in, you were typing it in on the terminal, and you would have to send it to the other machine. And mm -hmm. it's very much like the typewriter. You're typing it, the computer doesn't know what you've typed. And so you have to hit enter and send for that information to go to the computer, it process stuff and come back. And then over time, we get into, you know, PCs and that sort of thing where you're running applications, Windows uh, 3 and so on, on your local machine, right? Right. You're not sending it somewhere else to the other side of the world. Right. And all of that is happening locally. And then came along thick clients. Right. right. When people got into Java and Java programming, it was all about writing Java applications that would run on your machine. And, and I'll would, add, keep your thought, I'll add, this is starts to become the time that you yourself were running a rack in your closet. And I was looking to run a rack in my closet. I'll just throw that in, but go ahead, please. Yeah, yeah I have, I, I, I have stuff in my closet. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> we can, we can come around to that another time, but yeah. So what was interesting to me was as we got into web browsers and that sort of thing, even the early days before browsers, we we're talking about Archie and Gopher and things like that, the different protocols and systems right. where, you know, you are, it's the same kind of thing. You're sending stuff from your machine to a remote machine for it to come to give you a response back. Right. And then of course, web browsers are doing exactly that same thing. You know, the machine gives instructions to the browser, it draws stuff, you're doing things locally, and then you send it back. So the point that I'm making here is that it just seems like what, you know, this whole thing came around full circle Yeah, where, you know, it was for the longest time about thick clients. And then it goes back to thin clients where the server on the back end is doing all the work. You don't know where that server is. Right. Right. And so it's just interesting that that is, that has happened in that particular that circle. Is, yeah. I, I, I think about, as you know, as my co-host, I'm always going to find a way to make this about me. So why delay that? Right. <laughs> but, um, and I'll just say, I think I've gotten a lot of things right in predicting what was forthcoming. I've got a lot of things wrong. The famous ones are Bluetooth, the image tag for the web. And when Larry Ellison said in about 1995, I believe that we were going to go back to terminals, right? We were going to go back to thin clients. And that was the time that it was all about. We had all of this increase in local computing power right? Moore's law was in play. And I just really saw a world that we'd have data centers in our house, right? What do you mean thin clients? And again, I was wrong. Now enter the world of SaaS, as you say. Do, do you think that, I mean, it's probably not worth debating the physics, so to say, but do you <laughs> think that that was the right evolution of computing? And what do you think that has gained us? What do you think that has caused us? That's an interesting question. I guess I would say that it's more, it's fundamentally more efficient, like talking about SaaS. I mean, one of the benefits of SaaS, presumably, is the idea that that application, it's, it lives in one place-ish, right? But it doesn't, it's not like installed out across the world where you have an install base and you don't 
have any control over what versions people are on, the environments they're running it in. There's all this consistency you get from having it all in one place right. and you can manage it, that sort of thing. But that's kind of an advantage for both the provider of the software and then the advantage to the consumer is that, you know, they don't have to worry about what's on their machine and have to install anything. It's like there's so many things that you can do now just by opening up a web browser, go to a URL, and you have yeah. to install any software. There's all this stuff that you can do. So the thin clients actually make this a lot easier. And I'll tell you a funny story. Still going back a, a ways when mainframes were still a big thing, but PCs were coming along. And I had a, a manager at this one company. He had a he was a mainframe guy. Met a mainframe terminal sitting on his desk. That's all he knew how to use. And some of us were already getting into PCs and setting up, you know, networking with it and that sort of thing. We kept asking for more PCs, like machines that we could put on our desks instead of like shared ones right. out in the, in the hallway, right. that sort of thing. And so he ordered one, but he got, got it for himself. Okay. <laughs> and this was a IBM PS2 Model 80. Now, okay. if anybody knows, this thing was a very skinny tower computer that literally was supposed to sit desk side. Uh, on yeah. the on the floor, right? And he had no, he had no exposure to this kind of technology. It's just the funniest thing. So it came in, and it was in a box and everything. And he unpacked it himself. And it's like, okay, fine. So come back around lunchtime and look in his office. Guess where this thing is sitting? Uh, it's on his desk, a, on its side. Oh, interesting. Now, what's even funnier about that is because this was a narrow desk side computer. It had a feet on it that folded out so that it could actually stand stable on the ground. Right. He didn't know what they were for. <laughs> okay. And so they're sticking out of the end. Yeah. They're good. sticking out of the end, which means that it's not laying flat on its side on his desk. It's propped up at one end. Okay. So now it's, a, and now it's sitting there at an angle and he has the monitor sitting on top of it. And then it's like, okay, you've got to be kidding me. He figures it out later that it actually has to go on the floor. Maybe somebody told him or something like that. But then you know what he runs on this machine after that? What? Mainframe terminal emulation software. So he doesn't actually use the, the, the so the CPU is no. like being taxed at about 1% because it's processing yeah. text. Right. Yeah. And that's what's interesting to me. That's kind of like the reason I told the story is that when we think about these thin clients and all this kind of stuff, we don't necessarily need as much horsepower on our desktops or the thing that's in front of us as you know, the technology is pushing us. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. Adding a, a cynical view or or curmudgy. First, I do think that was the time. Then they were called PCs. You could credit your colleague with inventing the desktop, because of course, eventually IBM ended up with small, thin. I don't think by today's scale they'd be called micro by any means, or even mini. But we'll say mini terminals that would then sit on their side. Yeah, I have so many thoughts on it. One, right. First, there is, even now as we talk about EVs, right? We have this debate over batteries, right? And we're saying, look, emotionally, we want the biggest battery ever. In reality, you probably use that extra range in your EV battery. I think it's a single digit percentage of the time that you own that EV. So there is a, we want the big thing. We want the big SUV. Hence, I want all the computing power I can have on my desk. I had heard that I bought a Mac Studio that was an M1 instead of an M2. Because, of course, right, I need 32 cores, Dan. <laughs> right. uh, I, ahead, I remember a customer of ours when we were, worked together uh, some years ago, one of the national labs. I'm not, probably shouldn't say, but 
one of the national labs, we asked them, they said, what's the requirements for your software? And we told them, it's like, we needed, like, I think we said something like two CPUs and 16 gig of RAM yes. or something like that. The machine he bought for us, 64 cores and 128 <laughs> gig of RAM. I know and exactly. Like, yeah. Why are you, why did you buy this? It's like, well, it was just a little more, it just cost us a little bit more than the other one. So we just got the bigger one. That's funny. That's funny. And, and like, we're talking about environments. Obviously we were effectively running a local SaaS, right? But still in that, even though it can get heavy, it was nowhere near 64 core heavy, right? No, um, no, no. In uh, fact, if you act actually ran top on the thing, you would see that it would only use like, you know, the CPUs we asked of it because it was the Java app essentially. So it didn't know how to use multiple CPUs at that time. Ah, uh, right. Yeah, right. The only way you would use another CPU is if you spun up another program. Right. And then the operating system would farm it off to another CPU, but. That's all they did with it. Right? So, so wasted. So yeah, back to the kind of this, we have to have more psychological thing. And you triggered a bunch of stuff. Part of that was lent. The ability for me to want this power I have on my desktop or customers to want it or not need it has been facilitated by software innovation, like the browser becoming a rich client, right? A rich yet thin client. I do think and this will probably be a bigger conversation for later. I know this was an initial jump in and chat, but it gained us a lot of convenience, both in enterprise and both in consumer computing, a lot. What did it cost us? Right? And I do believe if we look at the science of computer science and those who participate in it, it gets paired to a level of abstraction that, again, has given us power and simplicity, but it's also... In, in the pursuit of obfuscating some of the complexity of computing, it removes a lot of pr practitioners from a depth of understanding they should have, right? And I oh, think, yeah. Right? And I think that's more in the perfect. And I'm a get off my line old guy, right? Like you're telling me you've never heard of a register, right? You don't, you, you don't actually know. I, I asked a developer that had maybe been developing for about five years the other day if they knew what assembly code. <laughs> and they're like, no, For sure. What is it? Yeah. I had somebody else tell me, I mean, I've heard of it. Isn't that something? And they didn't understand. But I think on a wider scale where there's a bigger societal risk that we need to tend to for all of the benefits is it's centralization. It's taking away ownership of data and this powerful thing that we outsource to this thing called the CPU, relegating it to the control of somebody else. And that reminds me of a time where I actually had to help a, presumably, I was told that he was a, a C developer, right? Mm -hmm. And <laughs> he was writing a, I don't know what the program was for, but this is at a trading company back in my Wall Street days. And he came over to me and said, I need your help you know, getting my, my program to build. I'm like, okay. It's like, you know, do you have a make file? And he goes, yeah, I have a make file. I'm like, okay, let me come see it. So I come over and sit down next to him. And he shows me his make file and the name of the file literally is make file like it's supposed to be. But I look at it and then it says, then he types make mm -hmm. and, and what he wants Runs it to it. do. Right. And it says no make file found. Um, you get my suspense, suspense is in. I just, I had to like, this is sort of one of those facepalm moments. Cause when I looked at the actual contents of the make file, it wasn't a make file, it was a shell script. This is a guy that did not know what a make oh. file was. So presumably he was a C programmer, but he came from probably a Windows C environment where 
you just hit build project and he didn't ever, he never had to build a make file and had to write one before. So he didn't know what a make file was. He just saw the instruction to say, oh, write a make file. So he wrote a shell script. Wow. 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 Uh, and you're like, hey, you couldn't do that, but you're losing all of the benefits that make provides you and you're recreating them. But anyway, go ahead. Yeah. But this is a story about abstractions, you know, just to your point before. Abstractions are on one hand that they're there to try and help us do something and get to an endpoint faster, but then we're also suffering any of the mistakes or problems or bugs or defects of those abstractions. And oftentimes we won't know how to fix any of them. And, you know, we're essentially then, I won't say victims exactly, but we're kind of powerless to actually do anything about fixing that issue. Yes. And that's powerful. There's so many ways I can go with that. I have a couple of things I'm going to want to hit. So I just will keep it light on that. When you talk about being less empowered, or I'd say, I'd almost say kind of at the whims of the system, frankly, I look at some of the security compromises and exploits we've had, right? And it's another form of what you're talking about. We're rightfully and necessarily to get the benefits of prior invention. We are continually building and then abstracting above that layer, building new things, abstracting above that layer. And today, my child Imani, who's a you know recent computer science graduate, or my son actually, who just took computer science, look, they literally can in a day. I was amazed uh, when he showed up showing me what he was doing. I'm like, son, it took me two, three years to learn that, right? So they literally can build something up quickly, but they are drawing in hundreds, if not thousands of components and thousands, if not millions of lines of code that influence how that interacts with the systems and other stakeholders, and they have zero idea what is in there. So now we start to talk about, well, what happens when Heartbleed comes out? And I know this is not a great thing, but you've adopted SSL as a standard component in an open source SSL library. I would beg to say one of the big problems was finding where it was deployed and who was using it. I, I would beg to say the startup is kind of, okay, finding out what it is, right? You mean I have this SSL de deployment encoded in my stack? And at risk of going too long, I'll add another anecdote and pause, Dan, and then we could get ready to wrap up. I had the privilege, as you guys will know from our intro, Dan is the engineer. I don't know what I am because I like to say I'm an engineer, but I haven't written meaningful code in years. I happened to get on the phone the other night with a developer of 15 years and like three or four developers are one and a half to two years. And they were trying to debug Ruby on Rails errors. And I was pleasantly surprised to find I added value because while they could build the application better than I ever could, when they ran into problems, they didn't know how to take what they found on Google or even not even go to Google and apply it to diagnosis. So it turned out, long story short, they had to do a shamad on a file so the file can be read in one case. They had to move a file to another path. But in this world where there's a level of abstraction, SaaS, instant on, you just don't get the benefit of even, you know, understanding how to manage files. Anyway, I'll yeah. stop there. I know yeah. I'm being an old man. I'll give you some floor. Yeah, no, I just, I'll keep mine short. I mean, it's the same. I have several anecdotes that are, you know, along the same lines or people, they're writing applications and they just don't understand the underlying operating system, the networking, all of the things that go into making this stuff work. 
And as a result, they write things that, you know, they're just improperly architected in part because they just don't know um, yeah. how things work. So, you know, people, I think that may be missing, right? They, I think more engineers, more developers should know more. Yeah. When I was hiring people, if I was hiring a developer, I felt like, tell me, were you a sysadmin? Were you a network engineer? Did you do anything with the operating system? I want to have a better level of confidence that you know more than just what the book said on how to write a method in Java or, or whatever. So, yeah. Amen. And, and I'll say, as I take us into the get off my lawn territory, <laughs> uh, that as someone reminded me and I was griping on, like I was griping on guys that, that do a six month software coding boot camp, And then they say they're full stack engineers, guys or gals. And, and he had highlighted for me, look, now some of these people, like the person that takes the initiative to go to a boot camp and then go secure a job, a lot of them are great minds. So I want to call out, it's not saying that the practicing engineers of this day are not extremely smart and talented and not accom accomplishing unbelievable things. For me, it's just to say there's benefit in having context and knowing the fundamentals that you're developing on. Yeah, exactly. 100% agree. So Dan... I had a couple of places I want to go in our dry run here and first run. I think I'll skip a bunch of them. And what I'd like us to do is to maybe just uh, take a couple of minutes or a minute each to close out and tell the audience why ATSD and who we are. So I'll let you go first. I, 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 you know, why are you doing this? Why are we doing this? What do we want people to get out of? Well, part because like you and I have known each other forever. And so collectively between us, I think we have 60, 70 plus years of, of software development experience. And so I really enjoy sharing the knowledge and helping people be better and follow better practices. And this kind of vehicle is perfect for that. So the more that people you know, find out about us and hear about what we do, you know, the more, you know, more people we can reach and actually help in their, in their day to day, just to understand, I think the context, I think the, the stories you were telling before about people not knowing how the operating system works or things like that, we can add some additional color for them that um, to give them greater understanding of the larger software world that they are a part of and then maybe help them contribute back and be just that much better than they are today. I love that. And I had some things in my head I was going to say, but now I'm going to freestyle because you said that. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> I think I, I, you know, I love that you brought the idea of, of us coming together to do this because I think in a very narrow minded, not mindset, I'd say we are unlikely friends and partners that have been together on this software journey for about 25 years, actually, because if I go back we met in about 2002, 2003. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, but we have a lot of commonality on surface. People may say as, as being different. We operate in different roles. We have a lot of commonality, a lot of common opinion, as well as different opinions. And I think for us as hosts, bringing that to bear offers a lot of value. I think we have not only the experience, but relationships and a shared understanding of software and technology delivery. That is going to allow us to bring together some awesome guests that I think have some impactful conversations. But I also think you said something about in this thing that we all participate called software. I think an important mission for us is and or should be give context to people that are participating 
and call out and impart the great responsibility that we have as stewards of this force in our society that we call software. And what I really want us to do, and I hope guests get it in the way we conversate, is that we recognize that all things in software delivery have human participants. I like to say, no matter what you're developing, the two final endpoints are humans. So let's bring humanity to software. Let's figure out how to understand together, how to work together, how to adopt and implement best practices so we have a meaningful impact with the work we do. That's awesome. Uh, yeah. So, so with that, I want to say thank you to everybody for listening. Dan, thanks for being the first guest on your own podcast. And we look forward to seeing you again with all things software delivery. And remember, don't forget the humanity of software.